Well, I want to thank everybody who obviously got dry gulched when we led them into that room and showed them a slide with a bunch of names they didn't know. And I just want to say especially to the Tams and uh, as well to the Serratos, I'm so sorry, you did great. <laughs> All right, and we are returning to our series from Genesis, which it's been quite a while since we have been going through. And so I wanted to kind of start us off with a little bit of interaction. So here's my ask for you from a cold start is find someone near you who didn't arrive in the same vehicle you did and ask them to tell you where in the world your family came from. And that could be, you know, a country, it could be a people, whatever. My family history doesn't have a ton of detail, but according to 23andMe, I'm mostly Swiss, Jewish, and English. So that gets you started. Why don't you stand up, find somebody you didn't drive in a car with or on a bicycle, a tandem with, and tell them... All right, outstanding work, everyone. Why don't you find your way back to a seat? All right, and since our reading of the word ended with the rock talking, I feel like I, I have to pray for this sermon. <laughs> God, I thank you for your word, even when it feels as unlikely as this passage does. I pray that you'd open our, our eyes and our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us today. And I pray that we will not depend on our power to live it out, but on yours. I pray that in the name of Jesus who makes that possible. Amen. All right. Where we start this week is Genesis 10.1. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. Okay. Well, after the flood, there aren't a ton of people left, so I'm calling this sermon Blank Space. And uh, we've got a, a fine image of Noah's ark landed on a hill. And uh, Noah's a familiar figure, right? Uh, it, across cultures, there are stories from other cultures that have them. But let's remind ourselves all of what has gone before in our Genesis series since it's been a while. So in the first couple of chapters, it's the story of creation. Chapters 3 and 4 were about sin entering the world through Adam and Eve and the consequences of that sin. Chapter 5 is about their expanding family. And then chapters 6 through 9 are this spiral of sin, and we've already seen God reboot the earth and more sin comes. So God's creation at the beginning is almost immediately tainted by sin. Adam and Eve, they make all the tables turn, rose garden filled with thorns, Blank space. Their family suffers from the sin disease, and even as the family grows and develops, the sinfulness grows and develops, and it grows so foul that God has to clear humans with a flood. And yet, that reboot is immediately followed by the cycle resuming. And God has basically control-alt-deleted the world he created. Immediately, the cycle returns, and Noah the most righteous man the world has to offer, starts things off in this new, clean place by growing grapes, getting plastered, and flopping where his sons could see him naked. He acts undignified, and his son Ham acts the fool. And if you look at this image, uh, we've got 
Bellini's painting, two sons, the ones on the sides are averting their eyes, and the one in the middle is cracking up because dad's making a fool of himself. The undignified behavior is the opportunity that Ham has to show disrespect to his father and to start dividing mankind again, even though it just got reset. So eight people survive the flood, and they've already sinned, acted ungraciously, and divided. And it's like having a computer problem that a restart doesn't fix. Hello, IT. Have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> okay, well, are you sure that it's plugged in? Uh, spoiler, we need to find ourselves plugged in somehow. But we find ourselves in this rebooted world with a sin problem, the same sin problem, and then Moses, who's compiling this stuff, we give him credit for pulling these stories together under the guidance of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us what is called the table of the nations. Scintillating, I know. And we've got a tree view of part, you know, it extends past what this, this page can show. It looks like a genealogy, but it's not a genealogy. It starts with people, and then it expands into nations. It expands into areas. And it's describing how these few individuals became the population of the earth. The populated earth had become depopulated, and Moses is like, I got a blank space, baby, and I'll write your name. Let's look at the geography lesson instead. And green is Ham. Expanded that way, well, we'll get to that. Yellow is Shem, red is our friend Japheth. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but even a bunch of nations and people groups start with these three brothers, these three brothers we've been naming. We're going to start with Japheth, verses 2 through 4. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. It doesn't matter what their names are. The sons of Gomer... Ashkenaz, Rephoth, and Togarmah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittites, and the Rodanites. And notice that only the sons of Gomer and Javan are listed. So there's already pieces of the tree that have been pruned out because the point of this chapter isn't an exhaustive list of all the people populating the earth. He's giving a sense for the spread of people across the post-flood world. And this is the earliest account that we have of how people got to be where they are. Japheth's offspring are going to populate the earth at the margins of the world that Moses would have been aware of. His, his sons, Japheth's sons' offspring, aren't really going to feature in the rest of Moses' writings, the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, he, and uh, Deuteronomy, the same way that Shem and Ham are going to feature. But let's look at verse 5. From these, the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. So this is a group of seafarers reaching islands, reaching coasts, and then flowing inland from there. And to me, it's kind of funny that after Noah's experience and his son's experience, that there's any further family appetite for boating. But here we are, and I guess that's kind of how it is for people who are boat people. But in this way, they fulfill Moses' blessing from chapter 9, which Pastor Tim covered quite, I don't know, several decades ago, it feels like. Genesis 9, 27, 
this simple thing, may God extend Japheth's territory. His territory has indeed been expanded if, as many people believe, this is the father of the Indo-European nations, covering much of Europe, some of the Middle East, and a bunch of Asia. All right, short amount, because these are peripheral characters for what Moses is writing. Ham comes next, the grinning son from that painting we saw earlier, the one whose son Canaan Noah cursed. And it works out to kind of an odd curse, to be honest, because there are some heavy hitters of world history in this line. So Genesis 10, verses 6 and 7, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, eh, I don't care. Cush was once called Nubia, and it's part of Sudan, part of Egypt today. Put is thought to be Libya uh, in North Africa, and Canaan is along the Mediterranean, the land that would be one day inhabited by the descendants of Jacob. And on these names go, and after an uh, a interlude of Nimrod, which I'll get to in a minute, uh, more continue. But I'm less interested in the geographic aspects of this. Uh, sometimes they refer to specific people. Sometimes they refer to places. Sometimes they refer to people groups. In the thousands of years since this list was compiled, people have connected the names with people and places that they think are relevant. And I don't think that was the point of this passage. Do you follow what I'm saying? So readers of chapter 10 of Genesis historically have said, what's going on in my world? Now let me trace it back to this. And I don't think that's why this was recorded so that every age could go, oh, these are those people. I think the point, the biggest point, is actually two points. And the first is God repeopled the world. The one who started it restarted it. He had an intentional purpose. It didn't just spring up. And the second is even the God-repopulated earth is still sin-plagued. So God repopulated the earth, but it's still got a sin problem. And Ham's descendants, especially Canaan, are going to be an ongoing problem for God's people. But here's a grim reality. God's people are always going to be God's people's biggest problem. God's people are always going to be God's people's biggest problem. Okay. That was, that was plenty heavy. Let's go to Nimrod. I loved Kyle's face when he finished reading this. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalnan Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kalah, which is the great city. All of this would make sense to Moses' readers, but some of those you've heard of before. But before we do any of that, what do you think of when you think of the name Nimrod? Not good things. Okay. Let's play a, another video with an illustration. Thank you coming in, Mac. The Goyles have been asking for you. They have? Well, a whole of all. 
The writers of the Looney Tune cartoons knew that Nimrod was a mighty hunter on the earth. They're making a satirical, a sarcastic comparison of this idiot who's wandering into an oven at the behest of the rabbit that he's hunting. Something similar happens to Elmer Fudd as well. It's not just Yosemite Sam. All our heroes are frail. Uh, but what we retained was Nimrod's an idiot. But that's not what the readers of what, or the hearers of what Moses wrote would think. They would think of not a loser, but a mighty man. And in verse 8, it says Nimrod became a mighty hunter. Here's what the English Standard Version says. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Moses is describing an actual mighty hunter most commentators think the point of his hunting prowess being mentioned is because he's not just good at hunting, he is a masterful conqueror of people. His skill in warfare is being highlighted indirectly, and Nimrod, he, he's the face for this new category of person. He's a skilled, dangerous person who, with that skill, accumulates power. In verse 9, when it says, before the Lord, the writer isn't communicating that Nimrod does what he does to please God. Oh, here, I've acquired a bunch of cities and I've built some. All praise to you, God. No, God saw him for what he was, a vicious, violent hunter of men. And that's worth an aside, that God sees you and he sees me, not in the way that, you know, we might cultivate our Instagram account, not in the way that we fear God sees us, but he sees us precisely accurately. He's always right in his judgments of us. Now, this passage associates Nimrod with Babylon and Assyria, and these, in turn, are violent and wicked empires in the Hebrew Scriptures. Even though they're used as tools in God's hand of judgment on his own people, they are wicked and violent. And that acquisition and use of power continues to be a problem of the human condition. And we've all been grieved watching some of what has been going on, not just in the world, but in our own country. Uh, we had killings in Buffalo, a person seeking power over African Americans. We had a killing in Laguna Woods at a Taiwanese church by a man born in Taiwan, but communicating a pro-mainland China idea, at least in his own mind. Killings of children in a Texas school as law enforcement waited outside and kept parents from going in to try to rescue their children. Closer to home, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States of America reports that for 20 years it has been hiding incidents of sexual abuse in order to retain its power. Its ministry is maybe how somebody would say it, but it's about power. 20 years of that. Even closer to me, this past Tuesday, I attended 
services for a 29-year-old friend who uh, had worked for me. His mother was a work friend, is a friend, and he, he took his own life this month. And there are so many additional examples that we could give of the destruction that we're leaving in our wake as we attempt to expand or defend our power. And we can debate all kinds of ways, legislation, how to address underlying issues, conditions that lead to murder, sexual abuse, suicide, and all kinds of other problems. What we have a fundamental problem here, and it's written all over the scriptures. I don't think we take it seriously enough. And the problem is that I am a sinner. I'm a sin machine. And sadly, like me, you are a sin machine. You and I want our own way. You and I want to live the life that we have the way that we want to. We want to feel entitled to enjoy this life, even if somebody else has to bear a steep price for our doing so. And Nimrod reminds us that this is not a new thing. It's been going on ever since this reboot of mankind in the flood. And Nimrod's grandpappy Ham reminds us that the sin disease is a family problem. And Ham's dad Noah reminds us that nobody, even the very best person humanity had to offer in God's sight, is still flawed. Every hero we have is flawed in a way that impacts everything that God has made. When I attended this funeral, I went with some co-workers, and we were so grateful to get to be there with our friend. But one of the things we talked about in off times was how people in the company that we worked for had used power in a way that was foolish, bad for the company, bad for other people, but for a short period, good for them. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Every boss thinking of their own skin and not those who work for them. Every worker indifferent to the organization or to the customers or those who are being served. Every man or woman who exploits another. Every self-absorbed parent. Every thoughtless child. Every faithless friend. All of those leave a mark. Even if we're not literally like Nimrod building empires. But another thing that going back to Noah does is it reminds us that all these divisions into nations, often interpreted as divisions into race, track back to a single couple, Mr. and Mrs. Noah. And people who have wanted to justify racism have done some heavy lifting trying to make this table of nations, along with God's curse, uh, Noah's curse on Canaan, into a racial divide. And guess what? As good as, or as bad as anybody in this tree might be, they all trace back to that same pair. We are all in this together. And I hope you haven't been at the service, the graveside, for someone who has ended their own lives. As with many funerals, you get this sense of loss for the family and friends. You see it in the room. The self-recrimination, the self-blame, the what-ifs that go through people's minds are visible on their faces as they go through this grief, and the reality of it all is overwhelming. And part of that is because we saw a promise for the future in the one who's departed too early. 
But beyond the break in relationship that we're talking about here and the potential for what would have been left of their lives had they lived it, there's something outrageous and there's something wrong about death. And in our guts, we interpret it, we feel it as outrage. And I think that's because every life is a gift. God gave every life as a gift, even those with the fewest resources, the shortest length, the least dignity, or the most obnoxious. Back in Genesis chapter 9, God said to, to Noah, he said, look, you, you have been eating all the plants of the earth, and now I give you everything that's on the earth, but you're not going to be bloodthirsty. You're not going to eat blood. And he continues in Genesis 9, 5, and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting of every animal. From each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Even though you're sinful, you have been given the gift of life. Go and live. And oftentimes when we concentrate on this passage's elements of punishment for killing, we lose sight of something that, that's, that's in there, that's below that. Why is the punishment for killing so severe in what God says to Noah? It's because God intended us to value each life, including human life. That means the person I have the least patience with, the one I have the least appreciation for or sympathy with, the ones who have to live in ways that I would never want to opt into, I would never desire to live that way, their lives have every bit as much value as mine does because every life is a gift from God. Every life bears the image of God, God says. However difficult it is for you or for me to see that image. And instead of staying there, reading through the rest of Ham's depressing offspring, in which if you read the history of Israel, you will see a bunch of the names of the people who are going to be the enemies of that nation and that people. Let's move on to the sons of Shem. Verse 21. Sons also were born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. I'll just point out here, um, it's uncertain who was the first in the order, it says in the NIV, whose older brother was Japheth, another way to interpret those words from the documents that we have is that he was the older brother of Japheth. Apparently, it doesn't matter what your birth order is either, so thanks for that, Rock. The name Eber seems to be the root of the name Hebrew. So this introduction to the line of Shem, known as the Semites, hints at the genealogy that's going to come in the next chapter where we'll be introduced to Abram. And he's kind of a big deal in the Bible. But let's skip ahead to verse 25 where there's a little bit of a mystery for us. We don't know what it's referring to exactly. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Okay, you know, is it like from one of those movies where the earth has been cracked in half and it's hanging in the air? It, we, we honestly don't know. And it could be that there was an earthquake or some other kind of natural disaster that caused a division of people. But I think 
there's a simpler thing. Now, the word translated divided, it's harsher than that. It's more like split. The people split. And I think it means that although all were sinful, some ran to that faster than others. And the chapter concludes by summing up the Shem section and then the whole table of nations. So verse 31 and 32. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. And honestly, that sounds a little anticlimactic, though I suppose you wouldn't expect a table to be particularly climactic. But I've just said a bunch of sinful people repopulated the world, and that's kind of heartbreaking. But I find a germ of hope in this passage and in the close of this chapter because one son of Shem is going to have his origin traced back to here. And I'll just take, take the mention of his name from Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In all this world of pecking orders and power trippers and self-protection, the line of Shem produced the solution to our human problem. And it didn't crop up by coincidence. It didn't happen naturally. God had to intervene. But here's how a guy who was transformed by Jesus described what Jesus did. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were powerless. He was all-powerful, but he laid down his power. He didn't use it to defend himself. He didn't even use it to save good people. For example, he used his life to save me. How could he do that? How could he even see something in me worth saving? Did you know that in God's eyes, you are worth saving? That however sad or difficult or disappointing or hopeless your life feels, that Jesus has already said, I can prove that you are worth something. Come with me. I've prepared a place. Come with me. And that same Paul who wrote those words to the Romans had an encounter with Jesus, whom he presumed to be dead going into it, and he had the point of his life completely turned around. Here's what Jesus said to him in that encounter. I will rescue you, Acts 26 said, from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, who are made clean, who are transformed by faith in me. And in his former life, Paul's a great example because he accumulated power to use it to torment, punish, persecute Christians. In his new life, he sought God's grace to see Jesus the King come and rescue and transform people into Christians. And right there is something to celebrate, church. God's plan is primarily to use his power to rescue. Jesus fulfilled God's will by laying down his power and authority all the way to the cross. 
Lawrence Chambers was the second African-American to attend the U.S. Naval Academy. He was the first to command an aircraft carrier. He was in command of the Midway in 1975 as North Vietnamese forces poured into what remained of South Vietnam, sewed up the coasts, made escape difficult or impossible, including for the thousands of Americans still left on the ground. So the Midway and the rest of the Seventh Fleet were dispatched to see who they could evacuate as the North Korean army poured in. So helicopters took as many passengers as they could carry. And when they landed on Midway, the crew moved those helicopters aside so that more could land. And more and more people came, more and more helicopters came. But Midway's crew saw a two-seater, a single-engine Cessna plane approach and circle the carrier. Multiple pieces of paper were thrown out of the plane and they could see the paper falling, but they couldn't get any of it before it went in the water. And finally, falling from the sky was a revolver holster in which was tucked a, a chart of South Vietnam, scribbled on which was this message. Can you move these helicopter to the other side? I can land on your runway. I can fly one hour more. We have enough time to move. Please rescue me. Major Bong, wife and five child. And I got something in my eye because we are all facing circumstances that we don't see a way out of. Some of us know exactly what they are, and others of us are bumping along happily for now. Here's what happened in this case. The captain, seeing that the flight deck was covered in helicopters, knowing, or thinking at least, that he would be court-martialed for doing so, told his men, okay, start pushing helicopters overboard. We've got to make a space. We've got to make a space. And they pushed helicopters overboard, and more helicopters with people in them came and landed, and they got those people out, and they pushed more helicopters overboard. And they had no radio communications with that plane, and they're pushing off helicopters, and they're hoping that things are going to go okay. And the captain said, okay, pick this course, it'll help them. Pick this speed, it will help them, give them a chance to land. And the pilot took two test runs to see how it would go. The crew is watching, biting their knuckles, knowing that there are downdrafts at the tail of the carrier that are going to make this landing even harder than it looks. The South Vietnamese major dropped that plane onto the deck, one bounce, it came to a stop with no hook, and he and his wife and five children poured out. Captain Chambers was not court-martialed for the loss of $10 million of helicopters. $10 million used to mean something back in 1975. Midway's crew raised money to help establish the major and his family in the United States. But Chambers, an African-American leading in a largely white Navy, risked his career, as far as he knew, to save a family, one family. The US Navy rescued who it could, and it didn't charge Captain, later Rear Admiral Chambers, with wrongdoing. A Vietnamese family were saved and established in a new life. And if every life is a gift, 
And if every person is a bearer of God's image, and if everyone is related, however distantly, what are you going to do with that life? What opportunities do you have to bring life to others? Whether comfort, whether hope, whether good news of rescue, available to all of us by giving up the old life to experience new life. Let me pray. God, I am so grateful that your rescue plan didn't require us to be perfect, didn't require us to look good, didn't require us to play our cards the right way because you looked at us and you saw who we were. And you looked at Jesus who lived a perfect life that we never could. And when we're included in him and you look at us, you don't have to look at our sinful behavior that continues even after Jesus makes us a saint. You get to look at his perfect record and say, I'm satisfied. And I thank you for Jesus including us in your family, God. And I ask that you would help us to be bearers of peace, bringers of good news, people who are willing to give up parts of our life, parts of things we value in order to make rescue available to others. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before, before we do anything else, I want to give you a chance to participate a little more and talk amongst yourselves. So I mentioned Nimrod's collection of power, and I alluded to a workplace in which I was with some friends where there were people who made life miserable for people because they were looking for a way to the top. That's one of my experiences of abuse of power. So I have two questions for you. Where in your own life, not in the news, in your own life, do you see power most misused? And where in your own life do you see an opportunity to appreciate an underappreciated life. And I realize I'm hitting you cold with these questions, but if you could kind of gather in groups of three to five and take a stab at this, I think it would be valuable to try to put this in terms of what we're experiencing on a daily basis. So, everybody stand. Look for somebody who wasn't in your vehicle when you came here. Join up as a three to five person group. Look at these questions. 